Inside Out with Nick Holt. One of the most harmful myths today is that males can't be victims of sexual abuse. This idea has been absorbed by society, largely due to the lack of awareness and coverage from our media. We expect males to be able to protect themselves. Perhaps that's why men are often depicted in the media as never being vulnerable, either physically or emotionally. But boys are not men. They're children, and children will always be more vulnerable than those who abuse them. Those who manipulate or coerce boys into unwanted sexual experiences and staying silent. This is usually done from a position of authority, a coach, a teacher, a religious leader. And sometimes it's done from a position of status, an older cousin, an admired athlete, or even a parent. These predators use whatever means available to pull young boys into their web. They lavish them with attention, special privileges, money, gifts, promises or bribes, and even outright threats. Many boys suffer harm because adults who could believe them and help them didn't, often refusing to acknowledge what happened and the harm it caused. This can lead to intense feelings of shame, guilt and worthlessness, leading many to believe they have to tough it out on their own. Simply put, male victims of sexual abuse are being ignored and the consequences are catastrophic. Joining me to talk about this problem is Canadian clinical psychologist and author of the book Men 2, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse, Dr. Kelly Palfi. Before becoming a psychologist, Dr. Palfi served as an officer in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Force for 13 years, including four years in the Behavioural Sciences Unit. She also worked as a corrections officer in the Canadian prison system. And she joined me earlier from her home in Alberta, Canada, for this interview. Dr. Palfi, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's nice to be here. Before we get stuck into a little bit about what motivated you to write this, um, what are some of the main myths and perhaps overlooked statistics that we know about this problem? Well, for starters, we know that, uh, like you said, male sexual abuse is very underreported and males are very underrepresented in the helping profession. Research shows that one out of every six males is sexually abused to some extent prior to the age of 16, but very few people recognize this and uh, not many people are talking about it, at least of all the victims themselves. And why is that, do you think? Well, that was actually the um, entire premise of my dissertation, so it's not a short answer, but I can tell you that there's a lot of reasons that they're very complex, multifaceted, and that they occur across the entire lifespan. So um, we have a lot of things, uh, cultural influences, um, myths, um, biases, fear, trauma, all of these things are reasons that keep 
men from coming forward. A statistic that I read, which I found astonishing is that, so the statistic is that only 16% of men with documented histories of sexual abuse by social service agencies, as they say, which means it was very serious, considered themselves to have been sexually abused compared to 64% of women with documented histories in the same study. Uh, so that men are not coming forward doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't affecting them in the same way that it's affecting this 64% of women, I assume. Absolutely. You know, yes, men often don't recognize their own victimization, in part because of a lot of the myths that exist. Myths like men never turn down sex, men always want sex, men can be in control of their erections at all times, uh, those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, there is a lot of research that shows, uh, you know, it's, it's generally around 50%, not a lot, there's a little bit of research that shows, um, including that first study that you started to mention, um, where males will report behavioral indicators uh, stating that they were sexually abused, but they don't recognize themselves as males, as, as abuse victims. So only in about, the, the one study that I just looked at was like, out of 100 people, I think 7% of them actually recognize the full extent of their victimization. And I imagine that many of these men go through life without ever recognizing it. And the consequences of that can be quite horrific for society. Absolutely. I mean, they grew up um, having been victimized and they, you know, have trouble making it through school because they're so focused on their trauma or so distracted by their trauma. Their sense of self-esteem is affected. Their sense of self-worth is affected. Their ability to succeed academically is um, impacted. And yeah, they, you know, they suffer the consequences, but that, and just because they don't recognize their own abuse doesn't mean they don't suffer the consequences. And in fact, I think in some ways men suffer, um, well, in more significant ways than women, because women are allowed to get support. Men are so confused about their their own abuse, right? Like, mm. uh, you know, lots of times when a man will disclose to another man that he was sexually abused, he's either thought of as a homosexual if his abuser was male or as lucky if his abuser was female. Which is often um, what we see with cases that, that do get reported, uh, and that is that a teacher has had sex with a younger boy, maybe somewhere between you know, 11 to 16. And the debate often online in public is, you know, on one side is, do we high five this kid? And on the other side is, no, my, my son's been sexually abused here. Yeah. I would say at no, at no point should we be high fiving them because they're abused, right? Absolutely not. We wouldn't do it to a girl. Why should we do it to a boy? Sort of staying on that topic, maybe you can elucidate the grooming process and, and how this happens. I imagine it would be similar with a, a teacher and a, you know, so we're talking maybe in the case of a 28 to 30 year old teacher and a 14 year old boy. How would that process play out through evidence and data that you've got? If it was a, that scenario, you're talking about like a 28 year old female or male teacher and a 14 year old boy, typically, you know, I mean, if they were younger, there's a lot of other stages that might also occur, but at that age, it would be, you know, they would, they would probably somehow isolate them from their peers, treat them as if they're special, you know, maybe, you know, like as in the coach or the, 
or the you know teacher that kind of claims to see potential in this particular student and you know they're going to make them promises that they'll take them places they're going to typically win their trust um and whatnot for a significant period of time typically and then like i said isolate them introduce them to the, you know masculine principles treat them as if they're older than they are mm. instill this sort of um secrecy like you know they'll test them a little bit you know they'll let them have a beer or a cigarette or swear or something like that and or, or show them pornographic magazines or something like that to see if the kid will report and if the kid doesn't report then they've got that bond of secrecy uh they've got, he's got you know a shoe in in that way and they'll start introducing them to sexual um you know things whether it be pornography or the idea of you know asking them how much do you know about sex talking to them about sex teaching them how to masturbate and before long they're engaging in sexual acts with them let's come back to that uh, in a, in, a, in a little bit and just go into how you got into this um and and what sort of inspired you to begin this journey um and and perhaps talk a little bit about your role within the i assume canadian prison system as a corrections officer? I began my career working in corrections and that was where I kind of recognized that there was a disproportionate number of males in the system to females and I honestly never understood that. I remember thinking like why are there so many males compared to females? Like mm. it just didn't make sense to me and nobody could answer that question. You know, well men are more violent. Well why are they more violent? You know? Or men are men are increased property crime. Well why? Why are they doing this? You know, I had all these questions and then um, when I got into the RCMP Behavioral Sciences Unit, they were training me to be a subject matter expert. And I heard one of our pro hockey players talk about his abuse. He came and spoke to us. And he talked about the reasons why he didn't disclose. And they just broke my heart. And, and he talked about, like, you know, like very valid reasons. You know, my, my abuser had promised to help me to get pro, which he had the means to do that. And, and the, the hockey player had the talent to go. So it was like, you know, I need you, you need me. And, you know, his um, career was literally lifting his family out of poverty. Um, he felt like other parents knew, but did nothing. And that one broke my heart. I was like, this, are you kidding me? People could know about this and turn a blind eye um, because their children were benefiting. And then the other thing that he said was he talked about living this double life about how on one hand he was a pro hockey player and on another hand he was, you know, a victim. And at the time, I mean, I'm in major crimes in the RCMP and in what should have been my dream job, but I would go home and bawl my eyes out all the time because I was being bullied. So I got that tiny little piece of it, you know? I got that tiny little piece, that living a double life piece. And then fast forward, I ended up losing my career to bullying. Um, I needed something to be passionate about and I was reminded of his lecture. And I just thought, you know, with my background and my skill set and my training, like I know this goes on and, you know, nobody's looking at this, so why not me? I actually think you're the perfect person to do this. I mean, you, you tick all the boxes in terms of uh, coming at this from the lens of a, of a woman, firstly, um, and secondly, the lens of law and order, uh, and thirdly, the lens of rehabilitation through your work as a clinical psychologist. You're seeing or you've seen and will see the entire spectrum there. Mm -hmm. It must be a challenging job at times. Well, I mean, honestly, the hardest part is getting the word out there, right? The hardest part is, you know, how slow the wheels turn. Like, it blows my mind, you know, that, you know, I could do a lecture to psychologists and sell four books. It's frustrating because, like, as a police lady in the behavioral sciences unit, we were considered the experts, right? Mm. 
I'm just going to speak to that for a second, if you don't mind, Nick. Like you said, sure. you know, you're perfect because you were because you are a woman. Well, at the time, I was working for a male supervisor, and we had like too many victims, let's say. So we had to narrow down. Like you know, it's like it's like it's like taking a serial killer, and he's got 500 victims. Well, we can't. The courts couldn't handle 500 victims, so pick five, investigate it well, and put him away for those five, and hopefully he'll never get out. It was kind of the same thing for us. It was like we had so much evidence. We couldn't possibly, like we started off laying all the charges on all the victims that we had. And it was over 300 charges. And the Crown said, like, we can't handle that many. So narrow it down. And so my boss said to me, well, it wasn't, uh, my boss said to me, don't worry about the boys. And he was a male. And I didn't question that. Like, that haunts me that I didn't question that. Mm. I was the expert. And fast forward into my into my PhD training, I was doing, you know, different lectures with different classes and, you know, their supervisors or their instructor instructors would sit in. And then afterwards, the instructors were telling me, oh my gosh, I learned so much. Same with my doctoral research. Like one of my supervisors, when he reviewed my research, he said, Kelly, he said, it wasn't even healthy. He said, I stayed up all night and read your research. I think it was 288 pages. Like he said, he said it wasn't healthy. I stayed up all night and read it. I could not put it down. It was fascinating. Males are not even being recognized as victims by psychologists, the ones that should be able to help them the most, right? So mm -hmm. it's super frustrating. The frustrating part is how, you know, like I can try to say, hey guys, we didn't know about this. Like I was the expert and I knew nothing, right? And it's like, yeah doesn't happen here you know it's kind of the attitude and it just oh, or i don't you know i'm not dealing with that well you might be the way that i see it the biggest obstacle to this is the media because it's not a popular narrative it, it, it challenges what's become a more popular narrative in terms of selling newspapers and putting eyeballs on screens and that's believe women full stop but what about believe men there's not an equal balance. And the purpose of my program, and this is not to, and we've spoken about this off air, is never to uh, marginalise sexual abuse of any kind. But yeah, if, if you don't tell the full picture, yeah. you're getting a distorted version of the truth. And I'll give you an example of that is that, as you probably know, we had a Royal Commission into child sexual abuse in institutions here. And within Catholic institutions here, there were 4,500 roughly uh, reported, alleged reported cases. Um, the average age was 11 and a half and 90% of them were boys. Yet the media focused their attention on attacking the sacraments of the church. The big thing was the confessional booth, right? I had to dig very, very deep into the ABC, which is our national broadcaster, to find information reporting the fact that 90% of these were boys. It's very, wow. very sad. And it's, it's, it's difficult when the forces are against you that strongly. Well, and that was sort of why I wanted to play off the Me Too title, right? Like, yeah, sure. It's like everybody knows what Me Too is, but it's like, hey, don't forget about boys. Like, that was my intention, right? Like, don't. And, and, and Nick, we're not necessarily, these are not adult men we're talking about. These are little boys. That That's right. I mean, yes, adult men get sexually abused too, but I, I guarantee that the large, you know, probably all of that 90% population would be young teenage boys or younger, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, 11 and a half being that medium age is 
an indication at least that these are boys that are at that age where, you know, the predators can test out that puberty. Kind of treat them as if this is a coming of age experience instead of Mm. abuse, right? And the problem with this is that when you introduce an idea and and a, a book as important as this with this title, there's, there's so much cognitive bias right now in people's minds that they can't look at the two problems as one whole problem. Yeah. And I, Nick, we talked about that last time we spoke, like just this idea of, can we just stop blaming just men? Let's just, let's get, let's direct any anger at offenders, right? Females are offenders too. 40% of my, of my victims have been abused by females. Most of them, their mothers. How do you see that play out in, the prison population. I mean, I think that our prisons are going to be filled with male survivors, right? If they weren't a male survivor of sexual abuse before they went in, most of them would be by the time they came out. It's terrible, at least, you know, from what I hear. I mean, you know, like there's so many reasons for that too, right? Like you could look um, like, you know, they say kids that don't learn to read by grade three don't have much of a chance of making it in the world. So if you've got a victim who's already been victimized before grade three, and he's distracted by that, it's going to affect his ability to pay attention in class. It's going to affect his cognitive development. So, and their sense of self-esteem, self-worth, all these things, um, you know, it can just snowball them really quickly. So, you know, let's say they graduate high school without the ability to read or without proper grades to get into university. You know, what chances do they have to succeed like you and I have succeeded, right? It's, It's a lot more difficult for them. Um, I mean, then there's also the piece emotionally, right? Like females, we, if we get victimized, we can go talk to all our friends about it and they'll be so supportive. Men who are victimized try to talk to their friends about it and they get, you know, they get laughed at or their abuse is minimized, right? And when we turn those, when we, you know, when we can't be expressing our anger in the appropriate direction that we need to, we have to turn it inwards. That's what happens. And when we turn it inwards, it turns into depression and, you know, it comes out in droves in other instances where it's not, you know, necessarily appropriate or meant to be directed. But, you know, this is, I think, why we have, you know, men sometimes engaging in acts of violence because they're so misunderstood or because they're so, I'm not saying all men are misunderstood, of course, but I think, you know, because, I mean, and I'm not even talking in those instances of violence, I'm talking about the buildup, right? Like, you know, they wind up engaging in fights or whatever, and just taking out their aggression in ways that are not, you know, appropriate or, or ways that they might not have meant to. And over a lifetime, it just kind of snowballs on them too, right? And I imagine that the more it's internalized and the more that we see comorbidities develop throughout their life in terms of substance abuse violence incarceration would i be right in assuming that it's the process then of getting back and identifying and treating that trauma is a lot more difficult yeah for sure absolutely right because you've got all these other social issues right you you know you didn't finish high school or you're you got a criminal record or you know that kind of thing absolutely yeah it's it gets almost lost in the you know, lost in the system, so to speak. Does it get lost in the memory too for, for, for older people? Well, you know, I mean, that was part of the things that I learned or part of the stuff I learned during my research was, yes, memory loss is a huge issue, especially in severe trauma. So um, a lot of, several of my participants had repressed their memories for long periods of time. One was over 40 years, I believe. 
And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, basically it's the body's response to that, which it can't handle. It's just too much. So it just kind of pushes it back into the mind until this place late time later in life when they're actually safe and doing well. So then the memory goes, okay, you're okay. We can deal with this now. <laughs> right. So it's like, it's yeah. cruel, right? I mean, it's a gift at the time. It helps you survive, but yeah, absolutely. Memory loss is huge. In terms of um, a clinical psychology approach, how do you like to operate now with, with this? If you if you see someone that is very far down the track, first um, you have to establish trust, and I do that with um, talking about uh, trauma itself. I'll do a lot of psychoeducation about trauma itself, so that uh, my clients can understand what's going on for them. Because if we just get triggered or upset or dysregulated, and we don't understand the process of how that happens nor how to manage it it becomes overwhelming so help, giving them the coping tools giving them the knowledge that they can work with to understand trauma and their own trauma responses to work on helping them identify their own trauma responses then we'll do traditional talk therapy about their abuse typically um, i'll try to identify you know negative core beliefs that they have about themselves myths that they're buying into that kind of thing and we'll spend a long time doing that and then if there's some really particularly difficult or stuck points, we might use some EMDR to process that. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a fascinating topic and one that needs to be discussed a lot more uh, in this country and not in replacement of, as we've spoken about, the abuse of women, but uh, alongside that. Uh, but get out and buy this book. It needs to be read. It's going to provide, I guess, a, a very different story. Absolutely, Nick. My, my book is first and foremost meant to support male survivors through psychoeducation, but also to educate the public and educate professionals about, you know, the, how, how boys and men are being misdiagnosed from an early age, misunderstood that there's underreporting and that we as professionals are missing it, myself included. <laughs> But, you know, research shows that boys and men don't talk about things often that unless they hear other people talking about it. So you simply doing what you're doing, Nick, is a great service to other boys and men that might like to have the courage to come forward. Well, thanks, Kelly. I appreciate that. And thanks for coming on the program again. Uh, just before we go, where can we get this book on Amazon, all those shops? And you, what's your website, Kelly? Kellypalfy.com. That's K-E-L-L-I-P-A-L-F-Y.com. Inside Out with Nick Holt 